0: A Podcast One production.
1: The year was 1994 and... I was all of 12 years old. The place? Sindelfingen, Germany. And back then, on a foggy late December day, it was another stop on a road trip I was doing across Europe with my folks. Now, Sindelfingen is a place that probably doesn't mean much to many of you, but Sindelfingen is home to Mercedes-Benz flagship factory, the factory that until 2015 was Mercedes' biggest, the factory that to this day produces the most significant car in the Mercedes range, and in many ways the most significant car from any mainstream manufacturer, the Mercedes-Benz S-Class. Now, the S-Class is known for its technological firsts, Electronic ABS in 1978, supplemental restraint systems that combined airbags and pretension tension seatbelts in 1981, radar cruise, night vision, active suspension, even accident precognition. Indeed, it was a W140 Series S-Class that was the platform for Mercedes' first experiments in autonomous drive in 1995. The car is, always has been, A technological tour de force, an appeal to a German conception of luxury. But back to December 1994 and the Sindelfingen factory, our trusty Fodor's guide informed us that we could take a tour. Drew, being a petrolhead, pesters. Dad, being an engineer, agrees. Mum came along for the ride. Curious. And what a ride it was. In a gaily painted little train of Mercedes wagons, we took off from the visitor centre on a magical mystery tour. We saw the thousand-ton presses and marvelled as sheets of fine, flat steel slid in one side and whomped out the other, fully formed as fenders, doors and floors. Body prep was up next, as Protean S-classes were bathed, painted, baked and rubbed to plutocratic perfection. Then I saw my first mariage, the moment when the engine, transmission and suspension are mated with the body from below. Then it was trim, then testing, and then something curious. As cars came off the line, swarms of people descended on them, fettling, finessing, finalising, doing whatever they had to do to make sure that the finest car in the world really was The finest car in the world by the time it reached its owner. I later learned that Mercedes was spending tens of man hours perfecting each car by hand. What we saw stood in stark contrast to the technological wizardry of the car itself, and it was an approach, I later learnt, to mass production that contributed, no doubting it, to Mercedes' near bankruptcy a few years later, and it was also the beginning of the end for their legendary build quality. Manufacturing cars this way just cost too much. You see, profitable car factories don't do slow, they don't do artisanal, they don't fix things in post-production. They do ruthless efficiency and minimum waste and eye-watering speed. At Ford's Dearborn plant, the one that produces the F-150 truck, I saw vehicles moving down the line at the rate of one every 54 seconds. Now, you'd think that the factory was a temple to the latest in robotics, but even the most efficient plants in the world, like Toyota's Takaoka plant, positively team with humans. They do the jobs for which the robots lack the requisite dexterity. They have quality assessment capabilities far beyond the most advanced artificial intelligences. They have an eye for waste minimisation and weaseling out production inefficiencies in ways that really should be the envy of Elon Musk. But these factories really only work at massive scale. Sindelfingen? It produces over 300,000 cars a year, employs 37,000 people, and has a production footprint of 1.3 million square metres. And yes, we are seeing the development of variable capacity manufacturing and the ability for single production lines to produce entirely different vehicles, like at Takahoka, But even Toyota, masters of the modern factory, can only scale that plant plus or minus 30%. So what happens when consumer taste shifts so much that a plant you spent five years tooling up to produce luxury sedans now has to retool to produce SUVs? Which is what's happening to Mercedes plant in Vance, Alabama. What happens when an entire market collapses like it has for Ford in Europe? and Russia. Or when the politics of your supply chain, a chain that runs to the same rhythm of your production line, that is to say, to the minute, becomes embroiled in something like Brexit. That last one happened to Honda, who's closing their Swindon UK plant in 2022, with the loss of three and a half thousand jobs. As I said before, the automotive industry works at scale, but it does not scale easily, either up or down. It takes years to build new factories, to design new models, to tool up for them, and years to recoup the cost. And if you want to slow down production, well, you could cancel shifts, but you can't fire all your employees for those shifts because you might want them back. So you have to keep paying them. You see, If market conditions change, the prices of commodities shift or politics intervene, the whole edifice starts to crumble really quickly, along with the lives of the people who work within it. Jaguar Land Rover has announced it will fire 4,500 people. Ford, 7,000. General Motors, 14,000. In fact, in the last six months, around 38,000 people have learned That they will lose their jobs at automotive manufacturers. And I have a feeling we're just getting started. But it doesn't have to be this way. We can scale and adapt our approach to building cars, but it will require a fundamental rethink to get there. And we need to think fast because the industry is in for a bumpy ride. In this episode, I talk to Jay Rogers of Local Motors about customer co-creation, 3D printing and hyper-local manufacturing. Mark continues his conversation with Elizabeth Barron, learning how she's set every car maker everywhere on a new course, integrating design, engineering, manufacturing and the entire supply chain. Then Sal explores the importance of plastics for electric vehicles. So join us as we take a wander down the production line of the future in this episode of The Next Billion Cars. In 2007, it felt like we were on the edge of something big. A man called Barack Obama had announced his candidacy for President of the United States, and there was a run on a little bank called Northern Rock in the United Kingdom. Two years later, Barack had won and the global economy was losing, big time. Alongside the banks that were at the centre of the global financial crisis, the automotive manufacturers, heavily dependent on cheap consumer credit to keep purchases and production lines humming, were reeling. And like the banks, the automakers turned to governments for help extracting bailouts for their businesses and scrappage schemes that paid consumers to destroy perfectly good cars in return for a subsidy on a new one. You see, the industry just couldn't scale down fast enough without closing factories and putting people out of work. And of course, it hoped that things would return to normal. But in the years since, the industry as a whole hasn't really adapted the lessons of that crisis. In fact, it's been adding more capacity in places like China, where demand has doubled, while fiddling around the edges in Europe and the United States, where consumer demand is stagnating as the markets reach saturation, and millennials are being priced out of the new car market. But back in 2007, something else happened. A man by the name of Jay Rogers created a little company called Local Motors, now, unlike traditional car factories, which are huge, require massive investment in tooling and infrastructure, and depend on thousands of people to run them, Local Motors microfactories use both large and small-scale 3D printing to create everything from entire vehicle chassis to components for electric drivetrains. It's an approach that can allow local motors to respond rapidly to changes in markets and materials in ways that traditional automakers simply can't. And it could be a path to the future of auto manufacturing. To kick things off, however, I wanted to get Jay's take on where the traditional automotive industry currently stands in relation to its customers.
2: So we pine you and I for the automotive automotive design to be more open and to be more inclusive. I love the quote, like ignore the world when you make your product and the world will ignore your product. Right. And so, um, but the automotive industry has stood staunchly against embracing that because they haven't had to ask permission because there are only so few people that could make the vehicles. And, you know, that's the sort of tragedy of being able to sequester and raise a lot of capital that, you know, even if you make a Pontiac Aztec, Pontiac can still exist for a really long period of time. And, uh, and and even though you can negotiate with governments on cafe standards about corporate average fuel economy you're you're missing the forest for the trees that they weren't asking for an electric vehicle um and so you don't give it to them even if customers are saying i'm i'm being murdered at the fuel pump you know or you know other things like that with the costs and the rising prices and the atmosphere is being choked in cities like industrializing like Beijing and Mumbai and so um, you know these are things that the automotive industry has not put in a design thinking way the connection between the user and the um, the company was just really to be fair just non-existent really dead and um, and so uh, you know that has been something that, that you've recognized and I think that I that we recognized in doing co-creation had to change a lot to be able to bring it together so I wished we all wished for the automotive industry to be um, uh, to be to be a leader in that and they've been actually a laggard.
1: And that's why Local Motors' approach to design is so revolutionary. They design from their customers' needs back into the business and adapt the business and the manufacturing to suit, rather than designing a product to suit the business model and the factory and then hoping that the customer buys it. So with a better understanding of Jay's views on how we should be designing vehicles, we dived in to how Local Motors builds them.
2: So for us, we wanted to start with the digital file and we wanted to make that manifest in the process of making with as little human touch as possible and, uh, um, and as, you know, as directly applicable in all of the ways of modeling a vehicle. So thermal, uh, computational fluid dynamics, structures, statics and dynamics, um, uh, so many things that the world of compute power and, uh, and uh, visualization, CAE tools, um, have promised for so long. But for those of us that are really in the thick of the automotive industry, realize that there's still far too many shop drawings that are made. And then you know, you have to go to a machinist who has to interpret it. It doesn't pop out of a file and go right onto the lathe, the mill, the, the printer, right. what, have, what have you. So for us, it was focusing on that and saying, you know, it's not good enough to just wave a hand at it. We need to be able to model it, put the, and then verify it, put it back in the model and then design off of it. And so for us, we think about the design thing that then goes through um, the machining thing, which can be additive or subtractive or assembly, that then is a net shaped part that then is used, is modeled along its life cycle and then is recycled or upgraded and becomes something new. That whole flow is digital. And so as a digital OEM, that's really what we have built. And, uh, and we do not pander. We are, we are focused on it. And that starts with the chemistry that gets that's involved. We, we, we think about the fact that steel which we, and aluminum, the metals that we currently make vehicles out of, you know, they're, they're reactive, you know, transition metals or basic metals, you know, they rust, they corrode, galvanic corrosion, other things like that. And they are, they are a group of dissimilar materials to make them fuzzy and warm on the inside. We don't drive around in aluminum cans. And so I, they're all these dissimilar materials and, um, and they're in the environment. Gosh, we drive around in these metal vehicles that are in the worst environment for them. And so, um, so for us, we started different. We went to something that was a, uh, basically a composite polymer but no longer like race car skins. What we said is we want to be able to have not a library of a hundred materials like steel and lightweight steel and aluminum, but we want a library of a hundred thousand materials. We want ones that are biodegradable, compostable. We want ones that are reusable, recyclable, ones that are super strong, ones that are super soft, ones that are sticky, ones that are not, ones that come apart, all of those kinds of things. These were the things that, that we really dreamed of when we were thinking about going back and making a material choice. And I think also what's interesting from an IoT perspective, an Internet of Things perspective, is when you start thinking chemically, you can put markers and you can put health and safety monitoring and things where you're literally inside the material and you are deciding when the vehicle needs to be serviced based on the health of the vehicle itself. And then you can introduce things like conductive materials and you can introduce things like even printed battery structures and printed solar and other things like that all based on material science, all without seams.
1: You mentioned there that uh, you were, you were a digital OEM. And I really like that because if I think about, um, okay, like the analog OEMs, right? So over, what is it like over a hundred years now, there's been a process that they've been refining iteratively at, at infinitesimally kind of small levels uh, to, to get where they are today. And you know, that process is kind of dependent on maintaining this enormous industrial base, uh, like even just in terms of the square footage required to, to build these cars. And those factories, you know, we're, we're talking about the factories here, they, they really only are financially viable when they're running kind of at or, or, or close to capacity. And so one of the things that we're seeing, particularly in Europe at the moment, is that, you know, over the course of the past... 70, 80, 90 years, these manufacturers have built up just an enormous amount of capacity. And yet in a saturated market, it's very difficult to keep those uh, factories running at, at an efficient capacity. I guess there's a hint within the name of the company, Local Motors, but it seems to me that there's something inherent in how you do what you do um, that provides an opportunity to get away from, from this capacity issue.
2: I love this line of thinking and questioning, and, and you'll, it'll really expose to you some of the ways that we, that we see the world, which are so different. So you know the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum?
3: <laughs> right.
2: It, we, we, we live it every second of every day when we take a breath because you open up your lungs, and what it does is it creates a vacuum, and it is then therefore filled by the oxygen that surrounds you. And, um, and so, but it's funny, we don't think so often about the fact that manufacturers abhor change and they do, they surround themselves with exactitude and asset intensity and factories that need to be run at or near capacity in order to be profitable because it's simply easier than change, but change is a constant. And so we train very differently. Co-creation is meant to harness and hold on to the change, which is inherent in what your riders need. They, their needs change aggressively, and so you need to be responsive. We started at the beginning of the podcast talking about ignore the world when you make your product; and the world will ignore your product. But we've been ignoring the world, and so when it comes to mobility, and so when you think about it, these factories are the antithesis of what customers want. And deeper than that, they're the antithesis of what economies want. You know, we see in the United States versus China, trade war brewing. And it's, to me, we're missing the conversation. It's not about build your products here or build your products there. That's not the way of the 21st century. It's build your products and upgrade them everywhere. Right. And let the the laminar nature of the supply chain feed the making of those products. And when you do that, you create local knowledge and you create responsive knowledge and, and you then create jobs. Then you create meaning in, a, in an economy, free trade agreements to become um, places again that are meaningful to live and work.
1: Given that the circumstances facing traditional OEMs are much the same in 2019 as they were in 2009, I wrapped up by asking what makes Jay hopeful this time around.
2: Um, So we live in an exponential time. And, you know, mathematically, what that means is that we are not linearly increasing, but, you know, there were millennia where there were very few people on Earth. And in the time where we founded the automotive industry that we still know today, we were answering a very different call. Um, So the change from horses in cities to auto cycles with those types of things was, was something we look back on and we think, wow, that was incredible how fast it happened and it changed the world. But we weren't as packed in by the exponential growth of population at that time at the turn of that century it was a very different place today we have all of the same systems of mass manufacturing but we have this aggressive population growth and so what makes me hopeful is recognizing that we live in an exponential world a problem identified as a problem that can be solved harnessing the potential of that exponential growth and and not being trying to do it the same way we did at the turn of the last century Um, is what makes me know that that's the great part about the human brain. You know, there's hope that's involved and there's can-do attitude and grit and experience and other things like that. And these are things that AIs um, don't do and they don't do very well. Right. if they do it at all. And so I'm hopeful because I think that it's exactly the seeing 2008 again and before that, you know, the fuel crisis of the late 70s. Um, you know, we've seen this this memo before, um, but now we have so many more people seeing it and they can all share so much more information. And I think that that's the change that's upon us as a result of that.
4: In episode four of The Next to in Cars, we met Ford design pioneer Elizabeth Barron. Over the course of 15 years, largely working alone, Barron developed a system that integrated automotive design, engineering, manufacturing, and marketing into a single workflow at Ford. Now that sounds easy. In reality, it means that a designer having a conversation with an engineer in different offices, on different continents, linked together in virtual reality, well, that becomes an intricate dance not just of design, but of materials, and supply chains and tooling change the design and it's instantly reflected in the manufacturing requirements which then triggers changes in the materials needed from suppliers and logistics to get those supplies to the plant and technicians to assemble those components a car is really a whole series of these decisions and chains of materials coming together more or less perfectly and that's quite a feat of coordination. It's not just the pretty architectural vision of the automobile that the designers and engineers are manipulating, although it might look like that. When one of them changes the way the car looks in virtual reality, that instantly updates all of the engineering and manufacturing processes needed to make the vision real. So making a change to the virtual model has real-world impacts. And without having to cross-reference across 100 spreadsheets and 10 departments, spread it across a global corporate bureaucracy. That's what Elizabeth Barron did. She created a single tool that brought all of these pieces together and made it feel seamless. When we met at the Detroit Auto Show, I asked her about that. Okay, so we have the designers slash engineers having this conversation around the car, around the model. And because it's a model, that's now having real world impacts on everything else. So in other words, it's not just, I guess, a sense of theoretical conversation about design. You're actually seeing both the impacts in the simulation, but you're also seeing how it's impacting all of that data that's in the spreadsheets, correct? That's
3: right, exactly. And that's the power because now you can have these conversations and you have so much data. It is a really data-rich environment and it's provided to you in the manner in which you should view it. So it's there's not a level of abstraction where you're looking at a vehicle and you're like, well, there's this uh, PowerPoint graph. What do I make of that on my car? No, you take that graph and you apply those properties to the vehicle and people see it in real time in, in all around the world at the same time and have a conversation about it.
5: Well, then you've got the testing, right? Wind tunnel data, you've got crash tests, side impact, all of that sort of stuff that then again, in real time, I guess they can look at, you input that, they can look at the results and discuss it on the spot.
3: Right, right, and so um, they can discuss that data and they can understand what's happening during those events. So you could take uh, data and show like airflow and you can discuss how different design changes mean different airflow patterns and and what does that mean? And then how if I change my material, does that actually have an effect or not? And so for crash, you could look at a crash simulation and we don't want to put somebody in that immerse. We don't want to do that, but you can really gain insight on what's happening during that event. And, and slice through the data and really get a good understanding of the way things are happening as that event is unfolding.
4: Although the processes Barron developed were aimed at helping Ford stay ahead of its competitors, there's no question that other automakers have been inspired by Barron's work. In Detroit, Sally and I saw Nissan touting their new design practices, design practices that looked a lot like what Barron had brought to Ford five years earlier. But hey... Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And it also points to a future where the process of designing a car, whether done by a big automaker or a smaller boutique firm, or even possibly one day by individuals, that process becomes possible because Barron's system is handling most of the heavy lifting behind the scenes, and that's a different world. What do you see? Coming next in this whole domain. I mean, this is kind of this is your field. You started it. Where did do, where does this go over that next fifteen years? How are we thinking about this entire integrated design and engineering process differently fifteen years from now?
3: I think uh, we will have a much um, more um, realistic environment that is spread. Across all the disciplines, I think still right now there's um, it, there's com- compartments of amazingness and then areas where it lacks. <laughs> and so I think in the next 15 years, we'll have um, a, a really strong platform for the data to move freely instead of doing like one-off things. Like if you wanted to create a, a simulation that involves a lot of analytics, still today, for every major OEM, it's it's a one-off. It's really hard to get that data embedded and have it be part of the process. The other thing I see is that the uh, connection between the virtual and physical worlds will improve, mm-hmm. and so that the actionable part. And then finally, I think um, the blurring between augmented and virtual reality will will take place, and that we won't have. Um, like, it just kind of these device-specific things that we have to do in order to see things this way. We'll be able to have a device that will be, allow us to view it in, in the way that we need to for the job that we're doing without, you know, having these multiple platforms that we have to work with.
4: And although you probably hadn't heard of Elizabeth Barron before The Next Billion Cars, her work is now seen as fundamental to the future of the automotive industry.
3: In... 2014 I received the Heron Gandhi Research and Innovation Award and it's a the uh, award at Ford that's given uh, to an individual for a body of work so it's kind of like a lifetime achievement award at Ford um, and it's given um, at the Henry Ford Technology Award ceremony um, at the end of the um, evening and the the um, I was the first woman to receive the award, the first person not from research to receive the award, and um, it really blew me away. <laughs> it was, uh, to me, um, a, a very um, uh, humbling experience, but also just wonderful to think that all those years of trying to get this uh, technology adopted it, that was like the absolute best way that the company could say, "This, you know, we we believe in what you have done."
4: Ford believes in it. Nissan believes in it. And within a few years, the way of making cars that Barron has pioneered, that'll simply be the way the next billion cars get made. It turns out Ford managed to come up with a second Henry Ford.
5: Look, I'm all for people customising their vehicles. After all, I practised architecture for years. People came to me wanting a house with a list of desirable elements and I worked out a way to deliver what they wanted as efficiently and as elegantly as possible. Often my customers, particularly the A-type male bankers, thought they were the architect and they would present me with concepts that were unbuildable and, frankly, just really ugly. And it was my job to soothe them into an alternative that boded better for the onlooker and the inhabitant without damaging the ego. And in one case, a client had the builder literally turn the roof 90 degrees while I was in hospital having a baby. Functionally, it didn't work. Visually, it was a disaster. And it cast unacceptable shadows onto the neighbours, so socially, it was completely unacceptable. That was an epic and expensive fail. So, Let's transfer those human interactions around custom design to a car. Even if the consumer is designing a pod that sits on a standard wheelbase, what we call a skateboard chassis, we still have aerodynamics, design rules for pedestrian safety and a host of other boundaries around car design. So perhaps it's software, perhaps it's a person, Perhaps it's a hybrid of both, but somehow a design expert needs to help segue unbridled consumer desires into something that works, is efficient, and doesn't offend public decency. Overcustomisation and divorcing style from function is that classic mannerist movement that comes moments before a society falls into the trough of its own excess. And somehow, we need to ensure that customisation doesn't result in waste in visual pollution, and a host of other nasties. I love the concept of designing my own interior, maybe in moulded cork or some other reusable, sustainable material. And interiors are the perfect zone for consumer customisation. But an efficient vehicle, like an efficient building, still requires expert design. I was flying back to San Francisco from Denmark, sitting next to a really cool girl talking about cars. That girl turned out to be Dr. Annika van Aken, and she is a plastics guru, a plastics genius coming to Silicon Valley to talk to all the new electric car companies about how to make their batteries safe. So can you, in a nutshell, tell me what your expertise is and why you were coming to the Valley? Yes, sure. So my expertise is I'm a plastic engineer. That means
0: that I'm not actually doing plastic, but I know all about how to design plastics and how you can use them. So I'm a mechanical engineer. So what I do is going to car manufacturers and talk to them about their high voltage batteries in electrified cars. And we take deep look into their um, batteries and try to figure out which parts they are currently making out of metal and which could be lighter or in a better design if you do it out of plastics. And as soon as we have found out what we can change, I will also support them to replace their metal parts by those that are made of plastic.
5: It's pretty interesting when you were telling me about battery fires and telling me that they run for two weeks. It's actually super hard to put out a fire in a battery.
0: So what happened or what can happen is that the batteries will heat up or the battery cells will heat up and then something happens that is called a thermal runaway. So it's like a chain reactions when the first cell is getting too hot, the, the rest will heat up as, um, accordingly. And we, of course we cannot prevent that by putting in plastics, but what we can do is, uh, considering, um, flame retardants, plastics. So, um, they will not actually stop the fire, but in in case of emergency, they will leave the person in the car enough time to uh, to leave the car to get out of there. And yeah, that is something that we as engineers need to keep in mind that this can happen, and that is something that is actually new to the automotive industry because in the past we didn't have um, the um, requirement that we
5: should use uh, flame retardant plastics in in automotive um, applications. If you're looking at sort of plastics that contain flame retardants and plastics that are composites, can we still recycle that stuff? Uh, yeah, it depends on what you put
0: in. I mean recycling is a different uh, is a very difficult field. Um, of course we can. What you can always do with a plastic is like burn it afterwards. We call it thermal recycling. Because, um, yeah, don't laugh about it. I mean, that is a cool thing because what I had, I taught a primary school when I was in the U.S. and we were also talking about recycling. And I was asking the kids what they think plastic is basically made of and they actually knew it. So plastics are basically made of oil. And as you know, oil will burn very good. And um, what we do or what you can do is, you know, burn the plastic and use the energy for, for um,
5: producing electric power And that. There's a lot of talk in the industry about um, customizing using quick 3D printing and decentralizing production. Mm-hmm. But my knowledge of 3D printing, it's very difficult to get um, a high-strength or long-life plastic in that. What are you seeing in the area of on-demand 3D printing in automotives? Well, yeah, that is a very interesting question. So we have a
0: lot of research in 3D printing and we decided, well, we don't think that goes well into these applications that I actually do because I'm also talking about structural parts that have to take up high forces um, and that are safety relevant. And a 3D printed part would never have the same... um, properties like one that is injection molded, for instance, because uh, usually we would sell um, uh, fiberglass um, reinforced plastics, and that is something that you cannot just print.
5: Drew, not going to lie. I am not sold on consumers taking the job of designers like you and I. I don't reckon they have a better idea of what's good for the world.
1: Sal, I'm not going to disagree with you there. But I think what I'm hoping to see is that designers play a much more facilitating role, a role that is much more kind of self-aware and aware of the world that's around them so that they can be designing not just products, but also the services that those products sit in that uh, help rather than hinder the people that we're meant to be serving.
4: What about a child who's grown up in a world of Minecraft mods and all of this other this stuff that's flexible and configurable, and then you actually give them a virtual studio You know, to take what Elizabeth Barron's done and turn it into an Xbox game for lack of something else? And, you know, someone from the time that they were 10 years old has been designing and refining the idea of their car. And then when they're old enough to afford it, they can actually take it and get it printed. Is that not a possibility that we're also now being open to?
5: Look, it's a possibility, but there's also, everyone thinks they're a doctor because they can watch a YouTube video. Everyone reckons they're a mechanic because they can watch a YouTube video. And frankly, yeah, maybe they can design their own vehicle, but the intersection of those vehicles with the rest of us and my eyes having a look at what they've just designed, (laughs) I'm just saying I'm not sold.
1: Maybe there's a hint for us here in what happened with the emergence of GarageBand, right? Lily Allen wouldn't have happened without GarageBand, right? And for a brief period there, she was one of the biggest stars in the world. And, you know, GarageBand does a whole bunch of really smart stuff in the background to turn, you know, a bit of plinkety-plonkety into a global hit. Uh, And, okay, if we're not talking about the fundamental engineering substructures of these vehicles, but we're talking about using 3D printing to create something that is, you know, aesthetically pleasing to at least some portion of the population on top, then I can't see why the technology won't allow us to do that. But I think when it comes to, you know, engineering the
4: underlying vehicles, no, i I think that's kind of a, a step beyond. But the thing is, that's exactly what Elizabeth Barron made happen at Ford was that the designers were able to sit there and poke at things with the engineers, but that just by the act of poking, it would then transform the entire production process in line with what the designer was making capable. So in some sense, we already do live in that world. I am not saying that we would be redesigning an electric motor, because I think maybe you're right. You draw the line somewhere.
5: Look, here's my drama. You know, we saw, we've seen in history beautiful. Um, Beautiful design then morph into this mannerist thing that uh, where form is completely divorced from function, right? And it's never ended well. It never has. It's become this sort of excessive thing. It's sort of like the world in WALL-E or this um, dystopia of people all making these crazy things on an engineer base. I mean, what about aerodynamics? What about weight? What about all this other stuff that uh, brings beauty to engineering, like this idea of meshing form and function? I feel like. Yes, you can have prosumers that are guided, but do I want every bit and piece that's made a Minecraft game now constructing their own cars and putting them on the road? I just think it's a mess. It's inefficient. It's not sustainable.
4: All right, so one of the things that's really interesting, of course, Drew, you've talked to Material Match, and... Rematch Automobili is now licensing their technology. They're a tiny little audio studio, and yet almost all the big automakers are now licensing some of their electric vehicle tech for their own stuff. So is that yet another version of this possible future where it may not be on the street consumers designing their own vehicles, but it's possible for someone who is not as talented as Amate Rematch, but is still talented, say a Drew Smith, to be able to start their own studio and design their own vehicles because the tools are accessible enough.
1: Um, look, w- we already see this happening, uh, and one of the things that I'm always interested in as a as a as a design researcher is looking for the hacks and the workarounds that people are kind of piecing together in order to make a future in their own vision. And actually, people tinkering in their sheds, creating cars in their own vision, has been happening for a really long time. Well, Carl Benz, right? Exactly. But people have needed to, you know, understand physics. They've needed to understand the basics of engineering. They've needed to know how to weld and to fabricate. And what's happening now is that the technologies that allow us to give form to ideas are making that much, much easier, you know, which are m- with a much lower threshold of knowledge required to get into it.
5: Yeah, all I'm saying is historically when style has been divorced from materials, knowledge, function and engineering bad things happen. And I'm all for prosumers. I think this concept of consumers having an active hand in forming an interior and customising elements is fantastic. But kel or if they get hold of the whole thing and get to put their vision on a set of
1: wheels. Just saying. But here's the thing. We're getting down to questions of
4: taste. There's that beautiful Simpsons episode where Homer designs his own car, right? And just, it, you know, at one level, it's just really ugly. But at another level, it also costs $87,000. So it's not just a question of taste, right? Right. You know, it's possible for a consumer to design their own vehicle, it soon will be, but will it be affordable for that consumer to make? And this is where it's not just a question of style. A lot of decisions, as we all know, that go into the design of a car are fundamentally economic. They're the trade-off between what you can afford and what will not kill you, (laughs) All right? It's that sweet spot. For sure. All right, look, we are nearly at the end of this first series of The Next Billion Cars, and that is a great opportunity to reflect on what we've learned. I mean, we've seen autonomous and electric vehicles. We've taken a look at design and manufacturing. We've been learning about the driver and passenger experience. We're learning about recycling and what it all means to be on a planet where we're making cars just about as fast as we're making people. So in our next and final episode of The Next Billion Cars. Why don't you join us as we take a look back on the road we've traveled and what that may tell us about the road ahead. The Next Billion Cars was written and presented by Mark Pesci, Sally DeMinks, and Drew Smith, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au Download the Podcast One app or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci and Sally Dominguez and Drew Smith, thanking you for listening.